for Matthew 24. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll bring you a Bible. So we think it's important for you to uh, read along with me as we study. I'm going to try to show you today in the scripture why I believe that's important. Now, Matthew 24, um, as maybe some of you know, maybe some of you are just completely unfamiliar with this, and that's okay too, but let me tell you, Matthew 24 is biblical prophecy. It's Jesus talking and answering a question that the disciples asked very pointedly and very plainly. And they asked Jesus in Matthew 24, in verse 3, they said, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Everybody say one. What will be the sign of your coming? Everybody say two. And of the end of the age, everybody say three. They ask him this three-part question about his coming and the end of the age. And Jesus begins what we call the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives when he gives the disciples the answer to this question. And I always love it when the disciples ask these very pointed, very clear questions. I love it when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And then Jesus goes and he gives them these practical lessons on how to pray. And in this particular place, the disciples are a little little confused because of what happened in chapter 23. And in chapter 23, as you guys know, in 22 and 21, all the way back to the triumphal entry, Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, and according to the law of Moses, the Lamb of God was to be presented in the temple on the 10th of Nisan from Exodus chapter 12. But the Lamb of God was not to be crucified for another five days on the 14th of Nisan, And Jesus entered on a donkey into Jerusalem triumphantly where we were studying in Matthew 21 on exactly the 10th of Nisan as the the, the law of Moses prescribed. And for five days, Jesus was being thoroughly examined as the Lamb of God because the Lamb had to be without blemish and without blame and perfect. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees had come and they were giving Jesus these, these lectures and these questions and they were coming up with these traps and trying to find some flaw in Jesus. And, and as Pontius Pilate would say on the next day, I find no fault in this man. They found no fault in Jesus. And last week in chapter 23, Jesus at the end of his ministry has a heart to heart talk with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and he goes gloves off. And he had tried for three years for them to to get saved, for them to receive him as Messiah. And many of the Pharisees and Sadducees had come to faith in Jesus Christ. We remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a famous Pharisee who who God shared with him. And Jesus shared with Nicodemus, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and Jesus shares this with Nicodemus, this famous Pharisee, and he gets saved. But many of the Pharisees of hard heart, Jesus now in Matthew 23 begins to tell them the hardline truth, that they were a brood of vipers, that they were a den of thieves, that they were like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they were white and washed clean. And on the inside, they were full of dead men's bones. He said to the Pharisees, you travel the world to and fro to make one proselyte, to convert one proselyte. And when you convert him, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are yourselves. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees the hard truth 
at, in his last public address. You know, we found it and we studied it last week a little bit strange because you would think that Jesus in his final public address, it would be more loving and more flowery. And, and Jesus spent lots of time sharing those messages. But in his very last address to the Pharisees, there was no flowers. There was no lovey-dovey. It, it was very, very to the core, very, very serious message that Jesus shared. And at the very end of that message that Jesus shared last week in verse 37, Jesus speaking to them, it says that he weeps or he laments over Jerusalem. Now, let me give you a little side note, just something that was fun. You know, one of the things about going to Israel, and as you guys know, we as a church, we go to Israel about every two years and we lead tours. And something we learned last year from our tour guide that I I thought was really cool, I had never learned before. And some things you just have to learn by being there. But here in this place, Jesus is weeping, and the Bible records twice in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, that where Jesus cried. Does anybody know the two times that Jesus cried? I gave you one. One is right here. One time he cried over Jerusalem and the, because they missed him, and the second time Jesus cried was when Lazarus died. In the book of Zechariah, the Bible describes that when Messiah comes or when the second coming of Jesus comes, that Jesus is going to put one foot on the Mount of Olives and and step over the Kidron Valley and one foot on Temple Mount. And so in Zechariah, there's a prophecy of Messiah coming and placing one foot on the Mount of Olives and one foot on the Kidron Valley. And our guide told us that if you put an X on the ground geographically in the two spots in Israel that Jesus wept, it draws almost a perfect line exactly what, what Zechariah prophesied that, 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 that the, um, the Kidron Valley is going to split from the east to the west. And so when Jesus places one foot here and one foot here, the Bible says the, 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 the earth is going to split from the east to the west. And those two places in the, in the Kidron Valley that will create this new rift or this new valley are exactly the two places that Jesus stood when he wept. And so here Jesus is weeping, he's lamenting, because Israel missed the day of their visitation. They missed the idea that Messiah had come. Had Israel and had the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious folks and leaders of Jesus' day, had they really received Jesus as their Messiah, we would live today in a very different world. God called the nation of Israel to be a light to the world. He trusted them with the word of God, with the scripture, and to them and by them, he wanted them and he wanted Israel to be a light to the world. And in this particular moment, Jesus is looking into the future and he's seeing and he's knowing in his heart what's going to happen to Israel, to the religious folks, to these Sadducees and Pharisees that he just talked to in chapter 23 because they did not receive it. And he weeps over the fact. He weeps over the fact of what had happened. And then as we know, because of of this, God will bring in, and not that he didn't already have the plan to do so, but God will use the Gentile church to take up the torch and, and, and be the light into the world, the bride of Christ that he describes you and I as. And so Jesus in chapter 37, in verse 37, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So the house that he's speaking of that was left desolate, their house, what was their house? 
Their house was the temple. It was the temple that Herod built. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple stood at its height 140 feet high. The temple and the building of the, of the temple was massive. There, there, was, there was no way that the Jews and that, that the world could imagine a world without the temple. And Jesus here makes this prophecy and this lamentation in this weeping over the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the condition of Israel who rejected the Messiah. And he says, as a result, your house, the temple will be left desolate. Now the disciples are going to pick up on this prophecy and, and, and it's going to freak them out a little bit. And he said, to, he said in verse 39, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In chapter 24, then, and that then ties us to 23, and that's why I backed up and started in 23. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. So the disciples would have understood in their mind that, that this, this prophecy that Jesus gave was so radical, they couldn't envision that it wouldn't be the end of the world if the temple in Jerusalem was desolate. They believed there's only one way that could happen. Maybe a, a country could conquer or besiege, or maybe the, the temple could be overrun. But for the temple to be completely desolate was such a, a hard concept for them to understand, for the disciples to, to agree, because in their mind, that would take the end of the world for the temple of, of Jesus's day to end up desolate. So they bring Jesus and they show him the buildings of the temple and the temple. And it's almost like they're saying, okay, Jesus, what you said was so radical. We know you made a mistake. And we, we're going to give you an opportunity to get it right, to recant, because that was so radical what you just said. And there's no way possible that could ever happen. So come on, let me hear it. Look at that building right there. That's a cool building, huh, Jesus? You got anything else you want to say about it? Do you want to change what you previously said about the destruction of the temple? And what does Jesus say in verse 2? And Jesus said, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus, speaking of the temple, he doesn't only not recant his statement of total desolation, but he doubles down and he adds to total desolation, total what? desecration, total de demolition. And he says, not one stone would be left upon another. Now, now this is an amazing prophecy um, in order for it to come true. Because even if the temple was destroyed, was sacked, some of the stones that were built in the temple were over a hundred tons per stone. And why would anybody after the temple was burned or destroyed, go through and every stone be removed one from another. So Jesus gives this radical prophecy to the disciples about the destruction of the temple. In AD, about, Jesus died in about 33, somewhere in there. And in 67, about 40 years later, the Romans had um, came and they, were, they had enough with, with Jerusalem and Israel and the, and the, and the problem and the occupying. So they sent an army to Israel to overthrow the Jews in Jerusalem for once. The siege lasted three years. The emperor did not want to see the temple, the, one of the wonders of the world, destroyed. And he didn't want anything that happened there to be um, destroyed. But he went in to siege the city. 
And history tells us, Josephus, the great historian, secular historian, says that an arrow, a flaming arrow, hits the temple in the end of the battle in AD 70. And the temple catches on fire, and the wood of the temple sparks the stone of the temple. And the temple was primarily built with stone. And this stone is called Jerusalem stone. A lot of Israel and the apartments and the streets, when you go to Israel today, you notice that everything in the Jerusalem area is made out of stone. Everything in the old city of Jerusalem, in the shopping areas, in the, in the Jewish schools, in the markets, in the homes, everything in Israel is built out of this stone. And, and the city was burnt with fire. And I can remember asking the tour guide, if, if everything is built out of stone, how did Jerusalem burn? And he said, well, actually this stone, this stone that everything is built with, the same stone that the temple is built with, it actually does burn. And, and at high degrees and temperatures, it burns and it burns very and because there's pockets of air in it, it'll pop and explode and create more of a burning. And so the Roman army, led by uh, Titus Vespasian in AD 70, sacked Jerusalem. They set the temple on fire, and the temple was built with gold and inlaid with gold and around the top gold. And the gold of the temple became hot, and it melted down the sides of the walls. And the Roman soldiers spent meticulous hours and time taking and, and removing every stone from another in order to get the gold from out in between the cracks and the crevices in order to um, rob the temple of all its gold. They overthrew every stone of the temple and fulfilled this prophecy exactly like Jesus said. I think I got a couple pictures, um, maybe. Um, I got a picture of some stones. I want to show you guys something. So that doesn't look like anything super impressive, right? But I want to tell you that those stones right there are the stones that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. These are the exact stones that the Roman soldiers overthrew off of the temple mount in order to get the gold out of it. And when Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another, this is archaeological, historical proof of what Jesus said in the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it wasn't that long ago that this was still all under, underground and under the earth. And in excavations around the Temple Mount and in Israel, not that many years ago, they've discovered this pile of stones. And when they discovered it, they realized that it was very significant because these are the exact actual stones. And what you're looking at behind there is part of the south wall and straight up is where today the Dome of the Rock is. That's called the Temple Mount area, where the Dome of the Rock sits today in Jerusalem, Israel, is where um, Herod's temple, where the temple of Jesus's day would have been. And on that corner, um, directly above that, is where all of these stones would have been thrown off. I tried to crawl on top of them. There's another look above. We're looking now um, to the north, or to the, yes, to the north, the wall here to my right. So the, on, down this way would be like the Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley over here, where Jesus was crucified out of the city um, up to the north and left a little bit. And that is the pile of stones that was all under earth 20 years ago and has recently been dug down and discovered. And then the next picture, I think we have a picture of the temple. There's Brian Edgett praying at the, at the Western Wall. Yeah, he went quick past that one. Um, <laughs> So this is uh, an artist's rendition of what, the, um, what it would have looked like in um, Jesus' day. So um, 
It's, I'm a little bit turned around because normally the, for me, the Antonio Fortress is on this side and King David's Palace is on the other side. But this is kind of an idea of what the Temple Mount. So today, again, it's, it's, most of this is all different. But in that area, either right next to it, one side or the other, is where the Dome of the Rock is today and what it looks like today. All right, you can take those off or you can leave that up. And so Jesus, Jesus prophesies that this thing is going to happen, this unthinkable. And so in verse 3, now the disciples ask this three-part question. Now, why did the disciples ask this three-part question? Because now the reality is that there's only one way that the temple is going to be that thoroughly destroyed. And what Jesus must be talking about is the end of the world. They didn't ever had it in their minds that in a short 40 years, this prophecy was be, would be fulfilled. Now, I, I want to hurry because I made a decision for us as a church this morning that we were going to kind of just go through Matthew 24. We could spend a lot of time in Matthew 24. We could spend weeks upon weeks upon weeks in Matthew 24 going through all of the, the ideas and the studies. But, and, and maybe there'll be a time to do that. And I always go back to Matthew 24. But I think before we do that, maybe it's better to catch it all. And then we can go back and, 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 and fill in some of the details. Now, now, one of the things that happens in churches really all over is that <clears throat> this idea that this is biblical prophecy. And maybe some of the young, young guns, young, younger pastors, they, today there was this kind of cultural thing where they didn't really want to deal with big biblical prophecy. It's like, it's not hip, it's not cool. Like, you know, the millennials, they don't want to know about the end of the world and what's coming, you know. They just want to know about what's relevant for life today and and what's hip. And, and some of the youngs and, and great young guys made a decision that they weren't going to deal with biblical prophecy. They said, um, you know, one guy said, if, you know, for you guys to quit beating the, the, the drum of biblical prophecy, that it's getting old and it's a clanging symbol. And then some, you go some places and it's completely the opposite. Not only do they have the idea that they're not going to deal with biblical prophecy, but it's all they want to talk about. Because biblical prophecy is so sensational. And biblical prophecy sells books. And biblical prophecy makes predictions and gets people excited. The problem is if you overplay some of these biblical prophecies and you make predictions and biblical ideas and then they don't come true, what happens to people? It hurts their faith. It it rocks people to, to, to if we sensationalize the things in the Bible. The truth about biblical prophecy is that one third of the Bible deals with biblical prophecy. So maybe that means we should spend about a third of our time dealing with biblical prophecy because that's the the choice that God made in the word. And I think that for the millennials who just want to be hip all the time, you know, what they're missing is that in 50 years, I don't care how hip their message was, nobody's going to be looking to that message about what's hip, but we're still going to be studying Matthew 24 and biblical prophecy, you know, for for the young guys. And it's like in 50 years, you're, you're not going to be hip anymore. I don't care how hip you are now. You might have a broken hip, but you're, you, you'll only be hip for so long, and then the hipness wears out, but biblical prophecy is, is, is lasting, will last through all of time. And it is important for us as Christians to understand it. It's important for us not to take this view that, that we don't want nothing to do with it. It's too hard to understand. We're going to ignore it. It's also, I think, dangerous to take the view where we over-sensationalize it and we try to sell books with it and we try to make it something that it's not. So we're going to take just kind of an overview 
look today um, at biblical prophecy and, and the answer that Jesus gave. In verse 4, Jesus is going to give the answer. Now, hold on before we get to 4, real quick. Realize here that, that the disciples asked how many parts to their questions? Three-part question. So Jesus is giving a three-part answer. Now, one of the dangers in Matthew 24, as you just read through it, is, is trying to, sometimes we make a mistake on where to place each of the, the, the answers that Jesus gives. Is he talking about the rapture? Is he talking about the end of the world? Is he talking about um, something that is happening? Because he's also answering in this answer the question about what's going to happen that's passed for us now is the temple is going to be destroyed. The, the army, Titus Vespasian and the Roman army, which the Jews had no idea this was brewing, but in 40 years, there's going to be a decision made thousands of miles away in Rome to send the army to Israel, led by a general by the name of Titus Vespasian. And so Jesus is also predicting that. So we're going to try to do a pretty decent job as we go through of, of identifying when Jesus is talking about which of these three events. And so the first thing he says is, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. So the very first thing that Jesus wants to address in biblical prophecy in this chapter is what? Is that no one what? No one does what? Deceives you. Jesus is concerned with deception. He wants no one to deceive us. So there is so much deception in the world. There's so much deception around the way. When Jesus said, take heed that no one deceive you, guess who that includes? Me. You. All of us. So you say, you know, what I like about this, and here's one of the things that I try to do in my ministry and in in my call to teach the word of God. One of the things I try to do is, is paint a picture for each one of you that all of us are together in this and that it, it's every one of your responsibilities, including my responsibility, to know the word of God. To, to know the things that the word of God teaches and says. My job is to help you understand, is to bring insight, is to teach. It is, is, but it, it, at the end of the day, if, if I taught you something that was skewed or wrong or, or bad, you're not going to have an excuse that you got bad teaching. And listen, if we're all students of the Bible, and if you take it personal upon yourself to study the word of God, to read the word of God, to know the word of God, we sharpen each other. We talk about things when we don't agree. And you know what? We don't all have to agree on everything the Bible says. That's, that's nowhere in the word of God. Does it say for us to love each other and be a family that we have to 100% agree on everything that the Bible teaches? That's beside the point. But again, the, the, the way that you're not going to be deceived, because I could deceive you. Anybody could deceive you. There's lots of deception out there. The only way you're not going to be deceived is if you're like the Bereans who, you, who, who they heard the word, and then they went for themselves to study it to see if those things were true. And so I always encourage us as a church, be students of the word. Read the word of God. You don't all have to be Bible scholars. We're not all called to be Bible scholars and, you know, and, and, and theologians when it comes to the Bible. But again, Jesus' concern for you is that no one would be allowed to deceive you. Because many, and you know what's so funny about the the idea that Jesus' first concern was deception? There's so much deception in this area. And why is it that people fall for it? You know, Jesus is going to go on to say about the rapture and about his coming that no man knows the day or the hour. And he doesn't want you to be deceived. Then he says, nobody knows the day or the hour. And just most recently, the name Harold Camping sound familiar to anybody? 
Harold Camping is a guy I had a church. I don't know where was he at, in the East Coast somewhere? And Harold Camping was a well-known pastor and preacher. And he told his church and his congregation that he knew and Jesus revealed to him when he was coming back. And what happened in the church? The church began, one guy, a, a prominent, wealthy guy out of New York City, he believed Harold Camping, knew when Jesus was coming back. He, he, he liquidated everything he had for cash and he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on billboards and advertisements because he wanted to get the word out, everything he owned, everything he had liquid to get the word out that Jesus was coming back. Many people sold all that they had and gave the money to the church. Doesn't that ring a bell? Like, does that not bother anybody? Like, if the raptures happen, the church ain't gonna be here anyways. What do they need your money for? Like if, 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 if God, if Jesus is really coming, if I tell you Jesus is coming, listen, don't sell your money and give it to the, don't sell your things and give your money to the church, okay? Sell your things and give it to people who are going to see it when we're gone. Because if I really say when Jesus is coming, so again, but this was a big deal. And what happened when the day that he predicted Jesus would come came and went? What happened to all those people in their Christian faith? They were rocked. They were devastated. They'd been deceived. They, 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 there was a, a grave, great concern. And Jesus is concerned that we don't be deceived. And so that's the first thing he starts with this. And then he says, um, verse 5, he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. How many will be deceived? Many people will be deceived. Many people are deceived. I, I could go on and on and on, but I said I'm going to try to jam through this. I said we're going to try to take Matthew 24 today at 10,000 feet. You know, that's how the airplane flying over, looking down. You don't see much detail at 10,000 feet. But today was supposed to be at 10,000 feet, but I don't do 10,000 feet very well. But there's lots of deception going on. I could give you um, ideas. And then Jesus said in verse 6, look, look at some of the things that we're to be looking for as a sign of the end. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. The idea of wars and rumors of wars is basically an instability or an instability and a fragile um, world that we live in. If you look all over the world, I don't care what part of the world you look in, you will find wars and rumors of wars. You will find people fighting among themselves. You will find nations fighting against nations. I'm not even talking about, you know, what's happening in Syria with the war that's going on in, in Syria or, or wars that are going on in different countries and places, even among themselves, even among the Muslims and the different groups fighting among themselves and killing one another. The unrest and the, and the things that are happening in South America and Venezuela and all over South America. And all over the world, I don't care where you look, you find this kind of unrest. And then Jesus goes on and he says, for many will, oh, I'm sorry, um, wars and rumors of war, see that you're not troubled. He doesn't want us to be troubled by these things, you guys. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So the nation against nation, the word in the Greek there that Jesus used was ethnic, ethnos versus ethnos. So, so nation against nation is ethnic group versus ethnic group. Do we see ethnic wars in our, in our world today? And then the second one, kingdom versus kingdom, that would be, um, you know, country versus country, people versus people. And so both of those things are happening. And then Jesus said, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. So Jesus 
um, likens this in verse 8. The beginning of sorrows is a reference that the Bible uses many times in describing the end times. And that sorrows is a word to describe a woman who is in labor. That's the sorrows that, that the, the pain of birth is about to put on you. It's birth pains. So, you know, we used to, when we studied Matthew 24, we would painstakingly um, try to prove that, that there were so many earthquakes and there was pestilence all over the world. Well, now you guys can do that all by yourself. I don't have to do all that homework for you. It was actually kind of fun, though, to go through and, um, you know, show you where, you know, because some people would say, well, there's always been earthquakes. There's always been pestilence. There's always been war. How are any of these things that Jesus is describing, how are, how are any of them a sign of the end times? Well, because what Jesus said is that not that there wouldn't always be those things, but that they would come as labor pains on a pregnant woman. How do labor pains on a pregnant woman work? When a woman is six months pregnant, there's not too many labor pains. When a woman is great with child and she's ready to give birth and and labor begins, her first labor pain, her first contraction is a half hour apart and is not very as severe and then, and then what happens to her contractions? They start to get what? Closer and closer together and more and more intense in severity, right? And that's the way that Jesus described these things as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And the fact that we had earthquakes always, we have more and more and more and earthquakes are becoming more and more frequent and more and more intense in severity. Famines, wars, rumors of wars. These are the signs of the times. And we live in a time... These things are exponentially increasing in a way that, that you just cannot believe with, the, with the, the sign that we're living in a day that, that Jesus is describing here as the last days. And then he says, all these, in verse number nine, I'm sorry, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. So the fact that people are gonna hate us as Christians, listen, it shouldn't be foreign. You know, I know it's one of the things for us as Christ followers. It's hard because, you know, we all have the same human nature. We want to be liked. How many of you guys love it when people just hate you and they spit on you and they just think terrible things about you? Nobody, right? Nobody wants that. Nobody likes that. Like, we all have the same idea. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. And it's difficult. But it's true. And listen, I maybe encourage you with this. It's not you that people hate. It's Christ that they hate. And the fact that Christ is in you is going to make them hate you. And the devil hates Jesus. And if Jesus is in your heart, if Jesus is in your life, the devil's going to hate you. And the world's going to hate you because, Jesus, because Satan is the God of this world. And so when we, when we experience hatred, when the world begins to hate us because we're conservative or because we have biblical values of morality or we see things a certain way based on a perspective that we learn from the Bible... The world doesn't get it and they're going to hate us. And eventually it says they're going to kill you and Christians are being persecuted. More Christians are being killed and persecuted for their faith today than any other time in human history. And you think of some of the atrocities around the first century. They killed millions of Christians in, in, in um, genocides in the turn of the first century, Nero and the different leaders and rulers. And we read about them in the Fox Book of Martyrs. But today in the day we're living in, Islam has killed more Christians and more Christians are being murdered for their faith every day in the world today than any other time in human history. And this is exactly what Jesus said in verse 9 is coming true. And then in verse 10, it says, many will be, fe- will, 
many will be offended and will betray not one another. Do we live in a nation now that's offended? A joke, right? Nobody wants to be offended, right? We're supposed to live in a non-offended world. But, you know, it's funny because Jesus at times was offensive. You know, Jesus at times did things and said things that offended people. But here's what I like to draw a line with. Jesus was never needlessly offensive. He didn't offend people just because, you know, he wanted to be needlessly offensive. But if it was a truth and it was done in love and, and and the result was an offense, Jesus was not against that. Because it was, it was true and it needed to be done. And Jesus said, and the Bible said, we unpacked this last week, but he said, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. And, and if that offends, then that happens. But we, in verse 11, it says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Do we live in a day today when there's false prophets? And are they deceiving many? And so are you, um, you know, are you, you are required again to see that you're not deceived. You're required to study, to show thyself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And all of these promises, all of these calls of the word of God that apply to every one of us as Christ followers, they don't just apply to leadership and to pastors and teachers, and they apply to each one of you. And the Bible says for each one of us to study, to show thyself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And again, the reason why I say that is because I love you. And I do, I wanna encourage us all from, from being deceived. And, and we don't want to be deceived. We don't want you to be deceived. There's only one way to keep from deception. And the, thing, the things that Jesus warned about here is that we're, if we're a people of the word of God, if we know the word, we read the word, we study the word, it's going to be a lot harder for someone to deceive us by telling us they know when Jesus is coming back. And then in verse um, 12, he says, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, I just want to encourage you guys with, with uh, verse 13. It says, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. You know, your, your walk as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You know, to be a Christ follower, I think sometimes when we first get saved, maybe we get emotional and we have this experience and we really, you know, radically get saved and really converted as, as a Christ follower, as somebody who wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we, we come out of the blocks running and sprinting and we're super excited. And eventually we get a little winded in our run and our walk with the Lord because we're keeping up a pace that we really can't keep up forever. And, and, and we become discouraged in that season. But I want to encourage you in this, that, that it's a marathon. Listen, if the Lord tarries for another 50 years, what will you guys do for the next 50 years? You'll serve the Lord. You'll walk with the Lord. You'll do service. You'll teach Sunday school classes. You'll set up chairs. You'll tear down chairs. You'll care for people. You'll give. You'll do the things you're doing now. And you'll do them on and on and on and on. The Bible says, don't grow weary in doing good. And here Jesus says, listen, those that endure to the end. And I want to tell you, I I personally believe that we're living in a day that Jesus could come back at any moment. But here's the other reality. Lydia's dad, who was a pastor, got saved in 1970. Or in the 70s, I'm not sure which year in the 70s. And and Lydia's mom and dad, when they first got married, they decided they weren't going to have any kids because it made no sense because Jesus was coming back so soon. And that's what they believed. Praise God that they didn't stick to that and they had kids and they had Lydia. And, and, and listen, the, the part of it is this. We do believe and we believe it because the Bible wants us to believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. 
that Jesus could come back at any day. God says this about that. If you live your life believing that Jesus could come back at any moment and is and will come back at any moment, it purifies how you live. It changes how you live. How many of you guys want to be caught carousing and, and drunken and shacking up with people that you're not married to and, and, and with your hand in the cookie jar on the day and the moment that Jesus comes back? None of us want to be there when Jesus comes back. So we live in such a way that we're ready in expectation. But again, it's very possible that Jesus may tarry for another 20, 30, 40 years. And what do we do if the Lord does tarry for the next 20, 30, 40 years? We continue to serve the Lord. We continue to share the gospel. What that means is that there's another 20, 30, 40 years for us to have an opportunity to see people come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we work. We continue to labor. We continue to do the work. We live as though he's expecting to come back at any moment. And until then, Jesus said, occupy till I come. Build houses, plant gardens, um, you know, plant vineyards, and, and do work as though I'm not coming, but live in such a way that you're ready in case I do come. And we've got to be ready. Jesus is coming back. But until he does, guess what? There's some work to be done. There's some gospel to be preached. There's some love to be given. There's there's ministry and work to be done. And so we also need to do and be ready to serve the Lord if he does tarry. And then he said um, in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, really quickly, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I don't just got time to unpack too much nonsense. But in verse 14, some have said for this reason that, that Jesus cannot come back because the gospel has not gone around the whole world. Here, look, Jesus said right here, he can't come back. The end won't come until the gospel has reached all four corners of the earth. And there's unreached people groups, indigenous people in, you know, the jungles of, um, you know, South America, of Australia that the gospel has never penetrated to. And for that reason, Jesus can't come back. And I want to tell you, that's not what this is saying. And this is saying that the gospel will go out. Jesus is prophesying that the gospel will go out. But even biblically in Paul's day, Paul and the 12 apostles and the disciples and those that were raised up in the churches that were begun, even in the days of Paul, this, this prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled that the gospel did reach all four corners of the world. And today with, the, with satellite and internet and TV and television and podcasts and, you know, no more in, in any other time period in human history than today is the gospel being spread to the whole world. There was that famous or infamous preacher, Jimmy Swaggart. Anybody remember Jimmy Swaggart? Jimmy Swaggart, he had a radio program that went, went all throughout the world. And he was telling everybody in the church, you know, you got to send me your money because I'm, I'm creating a radio program and I'm going to fulfill Matthew 24, 14 because God called me to preach the gospel to all four corners of the earth. And if you want to be a part of that, you got to send me your money. And everybody did. And he was starting radio programs all over the world and, um, and unfortunately, I, I don't know how he came to his demise. I think he got caught with a hooker and hotel room or something terrible happened. And anyways, um, Jimmy Swaggered was swaggered and something went south with him. And um, he wasn't the one that God called to preach the gospel. But I want to, I want to tell you guys and Jimmy Swaggered something. I know the one that God has called to preach the gospel to all four corners of the world. It's me. So send me your money. We're going to start some radio programs. No, it, it, and before you judge me too hard, it is me. 
But it's also you, right? It's us, it's you and me and all of us and the people that God has called because every one of us have the same call to share the gospel, to preach it, and it has happened and it is happening and Jesus can come back at any time. In verse 15, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, but for those days will be shortened. So, a couple things. Let's look at verse 15. And then we're going to... We're going to spend just a few minutes, probably the last couple minutes of the sermon today. I was hoping to get through 29. There's a couple good things coming up. But I want you to understand, we're going to camp just for a second on something that Jesus said in verse verse 15. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation. Everybody say, abomination of desolation. Okay, what is that? Jesus said, when you see it standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. So you should know what it is. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. First thing I want to point out, Jesus believed in the book of Daniel that we have in our Bible. Jesus believed that Daniel was was speaking the truth and the prophecies in Daniel were going to come true. He validates the words of Daniel. So, so prophetic and so ahead of his time was Daniel that many critics of the Bible didn't believe that one author in that time period could have actually written the book of Daniel because it so accurately told the future for the next thousand years that they didn't believe that Daniel could actually write that. And Daniel did write it. And it was accurate because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell the future. And many of the prophecies of Daniel are yet future, including this one. And so what the abomination of desolation is that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet is in Daniel chapter 9 is a prophecy about the seven-year tribulation period. Now again, if I bore you because you know all these details, forgive me, but I'm going to kind of make it simple for maybe the benefit of anybody who's not familiar with these things. But basically what the Bible teaches is that Jesus is going to come for his bride, the church. Anybody that's a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, regardless what denomination or nation or people you belong to, if you're saved and Jesus knows you and you know Jesus, you're considered the the church, the one true church, the body of Christ, a believer, a a disciple, the bride of Christ we're described as. Jesus is going to come for the bride. He's going to call them in a great trumpet call in an event we call the rapture. Detailed for us multiple places in the Bible is this event called the rapture. That begins the end of the world as we know it. It begins a seven-year period of tribulation called the tribulation period. The last three and a half years of the tribulation, as Jesus describes here in the end, he's going to say it's going to get worse and worse. The last three and a half we call the great tribulation because the events of the last three and a half years are so much greater and worse than the events of the first three and a half years. Once the church, the bride of Christ, is removed in the rapture, then then the Antichrist will be raised up on the scene. 
Now, we as believers, it's fun. And, and if you're a student of biblical prophecy, you know, to try to figure out who the Antichrist character is and who's going to be that and do that. But the reality is the Bible says that the bride of Christ, you and I, those that go up in the rapture, that we won't even know who the Antichrist is because he won't be revealed until after the Holy Spirit has removed the church. So we don't want to spend too much time looking for the Antichrist. We need to spend our time looking for Jesus Christ. And, 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 but it's interesting and it's fun to study. And, and, and anyways, the bride goes up in the rapture. For seven years, we're sealed in, in a Jewish wedding festival. A seven-year festival where we dine and we celebrate with our groom, with our bride. During that seven years on earth is an event called the tribulation period. During this seven years, the wrath of God is being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. Two purposes. Number one is to see the hearts of men turn. Just like in Matthew 23 when Jesus changed his tactic a little bit because people wouldn't receive the grace of God and so he gave them um, a harder tactic. He's coming and he still has the heart of restoration for all people on planet earth. And for those that choose to reject and make their hard heart, they, they, they won't get saved and they, they will go to hell. But for those God is going to, Jesus is going to try to get a hold of their hearts. The Bible says that in Revelation that two angels will be flying through the heavens proclaiming the everlasting gospel. He's going to raise up 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12 from each of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, proclaiming and teaching the gospel during that time. He's going to send two witnesses, probably Moses and Elijah, that are going to come back and they're going to stand in front of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and they're going to proclaim and preach the gospel for, for the time so that the heart, so that people will get saved. And there's still going to be a great rebellion. And the Antichrist who's going to be raised up at the beginning of that, the Bible says he's the one that's going to be raised to world power and, and under him will be formed a few things that we talk about often that, that we need lots of time to unpack. But you've heard these terms maybe before. Under the Antichrist, he will form a one world government. Under him, there will be a one world economy. Under him will be a one world religion. And, and, and these are the things that you've heard about under the rule of Antichrist. One of the things I want to tell you about the Antichrist is that the Bible describes the Antichrist as having enemies and a war and a battle. So, so he doesn't have total, complete, 100% control of everything that's going on on planet Earth because somewhere in the narrative, he has enemies. So there is a group that he doesn't get under his control. But one of the things that the Antichrist is going to be, he's going to come from the revived Roman Empire, the Bible says. Things we know for him for sure. It's very possible that the Antichrist is going to be Jewish in nature because it says that he will not regard the gods of his fathers, which is, which is a reference very possibly that he's going to be Jewish. How does that make sense? Well, the other character in the Bible that's a type of the Antichrist is a fellow we know by the name of Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot was very Jewish and he betrayed Jesus as a Jew. George Soros is an interesting character because George Soros was born Jewish. And in order to avoid the Holocaust, George Soros' parents um, put him into a Christian family, changed his name so that he would be protected as his parents and the rest of his family were taken to the Holocaust. And when the Nazis came around, George Soros had the identity of, of non-Jewish in this, in this Christian family. And, and the Jews recruited him as a young man to help him. And he, as a young man, he went and he told them where Jews were so they could arrest him and take him to the concentration camps as a Jew. And to this day, he's, he's Jewish in his, in his ethnicity, but he hates them and he's against them and does everything to thwart their plan. 
Judas Iscariot, who was a Jew. So it's possible, according to that reference, that the Antichrist will be Jewish. One of the things that makes sense about him being Jewish is that he, the Jews have to be able to believe in him and follow him. It's a part of the narrative that Jesus laid out. So the Antichrist will make a treaty with the nation of Israel for seven years, a seven-year peace plan. In the seven-year peace plan, he will give them the opportunity to rebuild the third temple. If you go to Israel today, they are, they are currently um, making and manufacturing the actual articles that are going into the rebuilt third temple. So when the end happens, the rapture happens, the Antichrist is raised up, raised up, he makes a treaty with the Jews for seven years of peace. And within this peace treaty, somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, because he's filled with the devil himself and a lot of supernatural events are taking place, he creates and solves the problem that nobody has ever been able to solve, a peace plan between the Jews and the Arabs in the Middle East, including a plan for the Jews to be able to rebuild their temple, possibly right next to where the Dome of the Rock is. Some believe the Dome of the Rock is going to be destroyed and it's going to go over the top. I personally believe that the Dome of the Rock is going to stay and because Ezekiel said that to, to don't measure the outer courts have been given to the Gentiles and that there's enough room and enough place right next to the Dome of the Rock where the actual uh, Holy of Holies is and where the new remodeled, rebuilt uh, temple will go up. The first temple took 80 years to build. This one's going to be completed in no time. It's going to go up in no time flat and within, three, within a very short amount of time, they'll, they'll reinstitute the temple sacrifices and ceremonies in the temple. At the three and a half year mark, this Antichrist who makes the deal, who's this world leader, he's going to go to Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. He's going to enter into the Holy of Holies. He's going to set up himself to be worshiped as God. This is the event that, is, that, that Jesus described and that Daniel described as the abomination of desolation. It's the Antichrist entering the rebuilt temple at the three and a half year mark and claiming himself to be God. At this point, the Jews are going to realize that they've been duped, that this is not their Messiah, and then they're given instruction in the rest of the chapter how to flee. Now, one of the things I'm going to tell you, and we've got to wrap up with this because I'm over time now, but the, the, this is very Jewish. Jesus said that pray that your flight not happen on the Sabbath. In, in what place, in what country in the world would the Sabbath affect travel? Only in Israel. You know, the reality is most of you don't even know what the Sabbath is. Most of us think here in the West, the Sabbath is Sunday. That's not even the Sabbath. Sabbath is from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. The Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. And, and does, it, does, it, does it affect you what day of the week? But you know, in Israel, everything changes on Sabbath. The buses don't run. The trains don't go. The planes don't go. The, the public transportation shuts down. Everything shuts down in Israel on the Sabbath. And so this is, this is a, a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled, obviously, because it's regarding the temple. It's in Israel. It's about Israel. It's a Jewish fulfillment of prophecy. And secondly, the church is going to be gone during this time. The bride of Christ, you and I, we're going to have a bird's eye view of all these things. So, hey, well, I guess we'll pick up there next week. Maybe we'll take two weeks in Matthew 24, which is okay. We probably should have anyways. But let's, uh, let's stand. <coughs> All right, let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Jesus, we thank you so much for this day, God. And Father, we thank you for your word, Lord Jesus. We thank you, God, for the biblical prophecies that we have in Matthew 24. And Lord, we, we, don't, we, we do want to challenge people and encourage people in our church, Lord, to be students of the word. 
to not be deceived because Jesus was one of your greatest concerns going into this thing is that we wouldn't be deceived over things of biblical prophecy. And Lord, we don't want to sensationalize and get so over the top that we can't live our lives in a normal way that we're supposed to occupy until you come. And Lord, we never want to ignore biblical prophecy, Lord, like it's irrelevant. Neither, neither one of those options are true, God. We know that biblical prophecy is true, it's relevant, and it has a healthy um, place in our life as believers. And Lord, help us to understand it. Lord, help us, God, to be encouraged to, just to read it and, and, and continue to add to it and grow in it and understand it. And Lord, we, we thank you that one thing is super clear in all of this, that you are coming back. One thing was super, super clear in the Old Testament, and that was that you were going to, God, you were going to send a Messiah that was going to be the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. And Jesus was born in a manger, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross, and he rose again the third day. And the one thing that's clear from that point forward in the New Testament is that this same Jesus is going to come back one day. And God, help us to be a church. Lord, help us to be a bride that's ready for you. Lord, help us to be a people, God, that's adorned for, for, for um, Lord, the wedding ceremony. And Lord God, in each one of our hearts that we might be ready and have received Jesus. And I pray, Lord, if anybody in here today, God, is not a believer, or is, doesn't have their heart and life right with you, that right now, Lord, they would just be saying yes to Jesus to get their heart and life right with you. God, we love you. We thank you. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day today.